This is indeed the last day and the great day, because all that which commenced for us six weeks before the beginning of Great Lent comes to its fulfillment today, the last of the great day. So we can say that the whole period from six weeks before Great Lent, six weeks of Lent, Holy Week, <coughs> Pascha to Pentecost, is one season in the life of the Church. I always use the image of, of a musical sign. It's called a slur, and it looks like a big eyebrow. And it means that the notes under that sign are to be read as a phrase. So we can say that this period, this season, is a phrase for us, coming to its climax with this, the last, the great day. The Gospel is very interesting, and you and I, for the rest of the week, can read it and take it apart, because it reveals wondrous things to us. The first thing is that ancient people, without having the anatomical knowledge, the knowledge of chemistry and physics that we have today, what does it mean? Ancient people did not know why, but they knew that. Man can live without food and live without almost everything except water. When the Savior is speaking using water imagery, he is speaking to the choir because they understand exactly what he means. These are people who live in desert country. These are people who live without the convenience of faucets and copper pipes and all the rest of it. These people know from water. <laughs> they know what a drop of water means. You remember the rich man and poor Lazarus, the rich man goes to hell, and he asks Father Abraham to send Lazarus to just dip his finger in water and place it on his tongue. So much as a drop of water is rubies, sapphires, diamonds, pearls, gold to those people. So when you talk about water, something visceral responds inside these people, and Christ speaks, first of all, of knowledge of him to the Samaritan woman as water that bubbles up within oneself. Here we have a people who depend almost, if we can say so, parasitically upon water, which is outside themselves, in which they put inside themselves. <coughs> if they don't, they die. Here is Christ who says, this external water is to be internalized, so that, as the Samaritan woman said in her simple-minded way, as we would have said under the circle, oh, give me this kind of water, I don't want to come here down to this well every day. But uh, the Holy Spirit now, the Holy Spirit is this water that bubbles up to eternal life, and Christ attaches it to knowledge of himself. You know, we have a kind of sense of the Father because of the word Father. We understand the Father. We have a sense of the Son because the Son became incarnate. We heard his voice. We saw his face. We felt his touch. But the Holy Spirit is more elusive. And here the Holy Spirit, which is a mighty rushing wind and like unto water, is that which establishes in our hearts the identity of Jesus the Lord. 
It is the revelation of Jesus as the Christ, as the Lord, as the Son of God, that is the chief work of the Holy Spirit in today's Gospel and throughout the New Testament. Therefore, while it may be a fact that other than the Holy Spirit descending as a dove, giving it a kind of uh, physical, visible presence at the baptism of the Savior, this elusive Holy Spirit is still felt as a power surging within us, a power which reveals to us that Jesus is, in fact, the Lord. There was a time, oh, three centuries and more after the death of the Savior, when there was a great patriarch of Alexandria in Egypt, and his name was Athanasius. Athanasius the Great, one of the greatest of the fathers of the Church, who was confronted by the first great heresy, not the first heresy, but the first really big and mighty heresy, which was called Arianism. And the problem of the challenge of Arianism was complicated because the state, the government, sided mostly with the Arians during this period. And St. Athanasius the Great spent a lot of his long reign as patriarch in Egypt in exile. Well, there was a time when he was back in his cathedral because there was a kind of relaxation of governmental surveillance and one thing and another. And, of course, he was preaching, as he usually did, on the gospel, revealing who is Christ, not the Arian Christ who cannot save you, but the Christ of the gospel who can save you and in fact does. There was a great hubbub because many people were honestly and sincerely put to confusion. They didn't really know who to follow. Arius in his teaching, the presbyter of Alexandria, even though he was not trained in Alexandria, mind you, he was trained in Antioch, but, or, or to follow Athanasius, so out of Egypt, out of the deserts, came a man, and his name was Antony. He is known to us as the father of monks, Anthony the Great. And it was one of the very few times that Anthony the Great ever left the desert and came into the urban setting, that most quintessential of urban settings of the ancient world, Alexandria. And he came into the cathedral where there was a great division and where people were, uh, can you believe, shouting in church. And they saw him and some had been to the desert and they recognized him and, and it spread throughout this huge cathedral. It's Anthony. Anthony is here. And he stood in front of them. And he pointed to Athanasius the Great as the true bishop preaching true bishop because he preached the straight Christ right out of the gospel. Well, some people wanted to know what gave Anthony the right. Who gives Anthony the authority to tell us which way is the truth in this matter? Anthony, well aware, he knew what they were saying, he could hear them, wrote, raised his hand for silence. And even though there were probably thousands of people in church in this vast basilica, everyone became silent. Can you imagine a crowd in Egypt or Greece becoming silent? Already a miracle. So, he said the following words. Four words. He said them with a burning face, and his words flamed in their hearts and changed everything. He said, I have seen him. 
This is the ultimate verification. We can argue, argue over my idea of things and your idea of things. And we can argue over concepts. And we can argue over impressions. And we can argue, above all, over opinions. And what's more fun than an opinionated argument? The best kind of all. Usually also the loudest. But you don't argue with someone who has said, I have seen him. And the him, the antecedent, is the Savior, Jesus the Lord. With such a man, argument ceases. It goes out the door. It flies out the window. There's no, no need for it anymore. And how could Antony say that he had actually, 300 plus years after the death and resurrection and ascension of our Savior, how did he see him? By the power of the Holy Spirit. How did the apostles finally wake up and smell the coffee and understand who is Jesus Christ? Because as we know, the gospel does not mince words. The gospel does not conceal from us that there is a mighty confusion not only amongst the people of Palestine, but amongst the disciples themselves, the ones who had been closest to Christ for the three-year earthly ministry, who had seen the miracles and all of that. There is still confusion Look at Luke and Clopas on their way to Emmaus, overwhelmed with depression and despondency. Can you imagine what it was like for those two guys trudging their way down the mountain from Jerusalem, uh, going to Emmaus? And uh, the Lord catches up with them and they don't even recognize him. They don't recognize him. How many times does that happen after the resurrection? They, the apostles, the nearest ones, the disciples, the ones that he gives himself Uh, the most who, they don't recognize him. But at Pentecost they do. What is the work of the uh, Holy Spirit? Essentially to establish in our hearts the authentic identity of that Christ about whom so much ink has been spilled, so many pages have been written already in the New Testament itself and in the epistles which precede the Gospels. The epistles of Paul are older than the Gospels. So it is. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. Can we see him, the Holy Spirit? Well, usually not. But we sense in a defining way his presence, yes, perhaps we would say in our intellect, but better to say in our heart, or as the Greeks would say, in the nous, that is, the mind of the heart, that which the Syrians call, the Syriac fathers, the eye of the heart, to see at long last clearly who he is. If you feel this conviction in your own heart as to the identity of the Savior, thank the Holy Spirit for that, because it is he who acted in your heart in an unseen way. But although unfelt at the time, we feel the effects of his ferment within us. And how does this come to pass? Well, because we pray. <laughs> because having sinned, we repent. <laughs> because having been sinned against, we forgive. And because our eyes devour the Gospels, and they devour the womb which gives birth to the Gospels, that is the Old Testament, and we devour the epistles and the acts and the revelation. Having exposed ourselves 
at a level of depth and intensity to such things, the Holy Spirit comes. And last night, for the first time, in a long time, the Church sang the great hymn to the Holy Spirit. Heavenly King, O Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, who art everywhere present and fillest all things, O treasury of good things and giver of life, come and dwell in us. That is the prayer to the Holy Spirit. It is an invocation, a supplication, a beseeching. Come, Heavenly King. Come, Holy Spirit. And so, if we are messing up our day, if we are jumping the rails, if we are leaving the uh, royal path, we pray to the Holy Spirit, Come, dwell in me, restore me, bring me back to the true path. And this powerful, mighty wind blows right through us and reestablishes everything. Glory be to the Holy Spirit who came upon the apostles this time as tongues of fire, establishing them in all truth. And then those men who had been put truly to confusion turned to the world and spoke with the voice that had been bestowed upon them. May God grant that we also feel that wind, feel the fire of those flaming tongues, and hear the truth of the Lord. Amen and Amen.